One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. So we're going to continue on with our Q&A questions for thyroid. This will probably be our last episode. Let me just check how many questions. No, nope, never mind. I've got a bunch of other questions that I got to go through. All right, so here's the next question. Um, somebody typically asks, I have thyroid antibodies, but I don't have any symptoms. Does that mean I have Hashimoto's? Yeah, I, and the answer is, oh gosh, it depends on what you mean when you say I have Hashimoto's. Now, those of us who understand immunology to a greater degree uh, draw a distinction between different stages of autoimmune reactivity or autoimmunity. So usually when someone says, I have Hashimoto's, that means that they have the full-blown autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. That means they have been diagnosed or are diagnosable as having hypothyroidism, high TSH, low T4 with all your symptoms, plus they have thyroid antibodies against their thyroid. That, that is what most people mean when they say they have Hashimoto's. But if you look at the medical literature, and I will tell you that it's not stated explicitly in one single paper the way that I'm going to present it to you now, but the concepts are there. And so all we've done is we've taken these concepts and we put them together to show an orderly progression because autoimmune reactivity or autoimmunity actually does progress in four distinct stages. The first stage is what we commonly call silent autoimmunity. That is a situation where, like this person asked, you have antibodies against your thyroid, but you have no symptoms and your labs are totally normal. That basically means that you have the autoimmune reaction, but it hasn't eroded your thyroid system function to the point where symptoms show up and it certainly hasn't progressed to the point where your TSH elevates and you start to have abnormal diagnostics. So let's call silent autoimmunity. And somebody could live their entire life there. They, they could have antibodies today and have antibodies in 15 years and still not have hypothyroidism. And that's entirely predicated not on the antibody presence, but on how they live their life, their diet, their lifestyle, and environmental factors that have the potential to trigger a more aggressive response. So theoretically, someone can be in silent autoimmunity their entire life and never really know it. The next stage, though, as for most people who have antibodies, and these antibodies can circulate up to 10 years prior to the TSH elevation and being diagnosed with hypothyroidism. Um, at some point, that underlying autoimmunity erodes function of the system enough that you start become symptom. You start noticing fatigue. Maybe you're starting to lose hair. Maybe you're adding some weight that you can't take off. Maybe you need more sleep to function. Maybe you're a little bit more constipated. But you end up getting frustrated because, you, because you're only in the autoimmune reaction stage. This is stage two if we want to give them numbers, which means that you have the antibodies. Now you're starting to get symptoms, but things have not changed enough to cause a diagnosable condition, meaning your TSH and your thyroid labs are still normal. And this is where a lot of people live. They, they can live this way for decades. 
and wonder why, like, why am I just getting worse? Why am I more tired this year than last year? Why is my hair falling out more this year than last year? And, and so on and so on. But it's not until you actually get to the third stage of autoimmune disease that the conventional medical system picks up on that because of how they have arranged their diagnostic criteria. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about what the optimal TSH level is. It used to be five at the upper limit of TSH. Now it's four and a half. So the medical community is picking up on hypothyroidism sooner than they used to, but it's still not within the line of what the medical research shows, which is probably should be around 2.75 to 3.0. And so it is theoretically possible for someone to be in the second stage of autoimmune reactivity for a very large portion of their life with an increasing loss of quality of life, an increasing set of symptom burden, and either get get diagnosed much later in life or not get diagnosed at all if they never cross the threshold into autoimmune disease. Remember, autoimmune disease means now we have the lab criteria, your TSH is high, your T4 is low, we can slap a label on it. We can give you a diagnosis. We can use an ICT, ICD-10 diagnostic code. And everyone in the medical community would look at the same case and go, yep, that person is hypothyroid. The problem is that person could have been suffering for 10, 20, 30 years. It just really depends on the timeline. On average, 10 years before the, D, the TSH elevates. So that's the first three stages. And, and a lot of docs don't recognize this fourth stage, which is unfortunate. And the fourth stage is what, what we call polyautoimmune reactivity. And what that basically means, the, the prefix poly means many. And what that recognizes is that according to current statistics, 50 to 60% of people with autoimmunity, with, I'm sorry, Hashimoto's disease, have at least one other autoimmune reaction going on in their body. So let's say that you start out with antibodies, but no symptoms. And then you go, I've got antibodies, now I have symptoms, now I'm in stage two autoimmune reactivity. Then you cross over into the disease section and you have antibodies and symptoms and now you can be diagnosed and you're placed on meds. If you're not paying attention to immune control and containment, putting things in remission and improving your immune control competence and resilience, then eventually what will happen is the autoimmunity will reach out and start involving other cells or other different tissue types in that. And there are several different common ones. For example, it's very common to have Hashimoto's and type 1 diabetes at the same time. Very common to have Hashimoto's and celiac disease at the same time. Very common to have Hashimoto's and some kind of neurological autoimmunity at the same time. And so this idea of stage 4 being polyautoimmune reactivity basically says it's not just Hashimoto's anymore, it's a multiplicity of autoimmunities. Now the good thing about a, a well-informed, from an immunological perspective, a well-informed functional medicine approach is that we can recognize that while there might be two, let's say even three or more autoimmunities involved, it doesn't matter how many tissues or targets there are to the autoimmunity, whether it's just Hashimoto's or maybe it's Hashimoto's in my brain, autoimmunity is autoimmunity and the thyroid and the brain are just two different manifestations of the same problem. So that means that we don't necessarily have to create a thyroid autoimmune approach and a, and a brain-based autoimmune approach. We focus on controlling the immune system and by default we'll be having a positive impact on how the immune system is attacking the thyroid and the brain. That doesn't mean that we don't factor in something 
that actually protects the thyroid gland itself or the, the brain and the brain tissue itself. Certainly we could and probably should do that. But the point is, is that we don't have to have a different protocol for each different type of cell or gland that's involved in the autoimmune reaction. So we focus on the root cause, focus on the core issue, which is the autoimmunity. And so let me go back to the question. If I have high, th high thyroid antibodies, but no symptoms, do I have Hashimoto's disease? The answer is no. By definition, you have silent autoimmunity against your thyroid. You don't have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism until you reach stage three, your TSH elevates and someone diagnoses you and said, now you're hypothyroid. I hope that that clarifies that. Next question we get that's very, very common is, I heard that leaky gut causes Hashimoto's, or sometimes it's, I heard leaky gut causes autoimmune disease. How do I know if I have it? Well, first of all, let's back up just a little bit because um, there is a general there's a general concept that is voiced in several different papers in the National Library of Medicine that does suggest that leaky gut is a prerequisite to acquiring an autoimmunity. And I, I would say that that is sometimes true because, the, you know, the reality is, is that there are many different potential triggers for autoimmunity. And I've run enough high quality tests for leaky gut with people who have autoimmunity to tell you for a fact that not everybody with Hashimoto's has a leaky gut. Some do, some don't. And those who do have it to different degrees because you can have a minor leaky gut or you can have a massively permeable leaky gut. So you can have a small problem or you can have a, a very big problem. So whether or not, I don't think we can accurately say that leaky gut causes or is a prerequisite for autoimmunity, but can leaky gut be one of several different triggers that activates genes that, that give you the potential to have Hashimoto's? Absolutely. You might have a latent gene or a, a gene that's not activated for Hashimoto's and something happens. Let's say that you, um, let's say that you have uh, some kind of a trauma, you're in the hospital, they put you on IV antibiotics, maybe you end up with gastroenteritis, and something happens and you lose your microbiome and you get a leaky gut as a result of many different mechanisms, that leaky gut and, and the ensuing inflammatory insult to the body and how it promotes immune dysregulation could be the trigger that causes Hashimoto's in one person. But to say that leaky gut is required to cause autoimmunity in everyone, that's absolutely not true. And we know that for a fact. So the question then becomes, well, when should I test someone? Like if I have autoimmunity, let's say I have Hashimoto's, how do I know if I have a leaky gut? What are the symptoms? And, and that's usually what people are asking when they say, how do I know? Well, the, the reality is, is that there are no, there are a couple of hallmark symptoms that can suggest, but not diagnose it. So for example, um, if somebody says, I have more food sensitivities this year than I had last year, what does that mean? Oftentimes it means leaky gut. In fact, I just got an email from somebody um, asking for a consultation and that was his very main complaint. It was like, I'm, I'm acquiring more sensitivities to different foods on a monthly basis. Like literally from month to month, he's reacting to more foods. Sometimes it's year to year. It's a little longer time frame, But that is, that is indicative, but not diagnostic of leaky gut. Because leaky gut is only one mechanism by which we can lose tolerance to the foods that we eat. There's different ways that we can get into that scenario. So even that picture in and of itself is not ultimately diagnostic. Um, the other thing that we quite commonly see with symptoms 
is people will have these unpredictable and variable variable reactions to food. So they might eat a meal uh, on one day and have a reaction, but they had the same meal prepared the same way a week ago and they didn't react. And so sometimes we see this variable and that, that again would have to do with fluctuations in the metabolic state of the environment. And it would indicate that that person's immune system is waxing and waning. And so on the days that things are not so good and things are flared up, you're going to react. But on days where things are relatively quiet and under control, then you have more tolerance. The problem with that is eventually you get to the scenario where unpredictable and variable reactions become permanent and consistent, right? So there, there is a typically a progression over time. And so we usually look at that kind of a symptom picture in the context of the larger story of somebody's life and how they got to where they are to determine whether or not we're even going to test for leaky gut. And there are some, in fact, there have been functional medicine tests for leaky gut around for, you know, longer than I've been involved in functional medicine, which has been almost 20 years now. And, uh, you know, in in the old days, uh, there was what's called a lactulose uh, mannitol test where uh, basically you would pee in a cup and then you would drink a sugar solution with mannitol and lactulose. These are two relatively large sugars. And then they, you would pee in a cup again, and they would measure to see if those sugars came out in your urine. And if they did, they would conclude that you have a leaky gut. Well, modern science has said, well, that, that mechanism is not, doesn't really work the way that we thought it did. It's probably not an accurate measure. What we do now is we do blood-based testing or serological testing where we look for antibodies to proteins that are only liberated and show up in the bloodstream if the the lining of the gut is starting to break down. Because when we go back and look at the lining of the intestinal system, and that's what breaks down when we have something like we call leaky gut, there are protein structures kind of hidden behind that first layer that normally really don't show up in the bloodstream. But when the barrier starts to break down and things start to get through the spaces in between, the spaces open up because the proteins that keep everything together start to break it down. And so they're called tight junction proteins. And so when we get leaky gut and the barrier opens up, these tight junction proteins spill out into the bloodstream where they normally don't they're not there in appreciable amounts. And the immune system says, well, I'm not used to seeing you, so let me slap an antibody on it, body on it, because I don't know what to do with you. And so we recognize leaky gut now by measuring antibodies to very specific proteins, things like zonulin, occludin, actomycin, and uh, the current testing that we're using also measures uh, antibodies to things like lipopolysaccharides, which are bacterial endotoxins, which can be part of that process as well. So is leaky gut required to get autoimmunity? No. Is it a common trigger? Yes. Is it a common promoting factor? Absolutely. Meaning that you may have triggered autoimmunity in Hashimoto's for reasons other than leaky gut. But if you end up with a leaky gut later, good luck trying to control your autoimmunity because of the profound influence of the gut-based immune system on your systemic immunology. All right. Next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com. That's drnoseworthy.com, 
To explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time. Thank you.